So it's fall. Yes. Um, we're all transforming before our eyes to Mr. Autumn Man. Um, I wore five <laughs> items of wool clothing yesterday. You're wearing a onesie right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am. Which, alarming to say the least. Uh, Looks incredibly comfortable. It, I will say it's much more comfortable than whatever bullshit I've got on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's we're getting close to the dreaded season of sweater weather. Um, that Dread, means, it's like 45 degrees outside right now. So what does that mean? Is that a yes or a no? Yes, sweater, yes. sweater weather. Yes. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like I've been holding out. I've been still wearing shorts and stuff, but... Now's the time. Now's the time. It feels, it feels right. It feels like it's time to transform from, like, a, you know, summery... You know, shorts wearing man whatever about town. to like. Well, man about town is relative because we don't go anymore anywhere anymore, do we, Laura? You um, walk to the donut shop. I do go to the donut shop sometimes, which that feels is like a fall thing, to be honest. It is a very fall thing, yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it's getting cold here. I'll be honest, I dread the colder weather during the coronavirus pandemic. I think it's going to be very bad uh, for our well-being because we won't be able to be outside as much though i'm gonna just like run around in the snow all winter i don't know i've yeah so so moose and i moose is my dog not an actual moose um so moose and i have been walking every day since like march yeah um and she prefers the colder weather as do i yeah but i don't love you know, walking in zero degree temperatures in Minnesota in the middle of winter. But this year, I think I am like, I'm digging the walking routine. And I think I have resolved to walk my dog in the winter. But now the question is, is should I get my dog booties so that the ice on the side or so that the salt on the sidewalks doesn't get in between her little paws? That is a good question. Um, yeah, I think for me it's hard to even imagine how to spend the time. I guess I'll probably sit inside on the computer and do healthy things like post too much. Mm. Um, that's usually what I do during times like this. Um, can't wait to see how my brain handles that. Uh, well, probably... it's not any different than what you're doing now, so I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, it, it can get worse. Trust me. Just understand that when you're reading my tweets, when you're mad about some stupid thing I've said, when I'm on, like, tweet 10 about some stupid tennis thing, just know that it can get worse. There is no bottom. The draft it, folder <laughs> is a nightmare. <laughs> you have no idea the things that I save in there. Um, and on that note, we should bring you in. Uh, so welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, uh, the indomitable Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, well, it's September 11th. Um, I guess there's no way to say that without, you know, having it be a weird thing. So, you know, I hope everyone's doing okay today on this September 11th. Um, but we're going to talk about things that have nothing to do with that, mostly. Um, so... I don't know. I mean, it's going to be an episode about uh, 
we're going to talk a little bit about Bob Woodward. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some large-scale things related to uh, the last year of work, all this kind of stuff. It should be very fun. Uh, before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Absolutely. Um, so before I begin, I should let you know that if in the distance you hear um, various, like, thumping and a screaming cat, uh, don't worry, he's been fed. He's just upset that I'm spending time with Eric instead of snuggling with him this I'm morning. I'm picturing, like, readers or listeners writing in and being like, I heard a cat. I'm concerned it wasn't fed. Is that, <laughs> can you please confirm... Well, the problem is also that, so, like, we're recording in our basement, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm very close to the cat food, but have not fed the cat, even though he has plenty of food in his bowl. Yeah. Um, so I have been yelled at. So if he comes, he's taken a break just now. But if he comes back, know that I am being scolded. And please refrain from scolding me as well. Um. <laughs> I think we could all stand to scold you a little bit more about the lack of treats. That's actually that not is, true. That's not true at all, There's Eric. no place on earth that has more treats than, than your house. So That's true. Um, anyway, that's continue. True. Um, <laughs> so it is September. We will have three special episodes over on Patreon up for all of you. Um, we'll have our regular query show and first pages show as well as a flex episode. We haven't yet decided what our flex episode is this month. Mm-hmm. So if you have specific questions, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. This episode exists for the really specific, the really um, esoteric, the really kind of just like, hey, I want somebody to talk about this and make me less anxious about it. To like, overtly cover it the stuff you want to hear about. Like, we yes. sort of re- leave it open to, to hear what you want. So, write in. Tell us. Yep. Tweet at us. Whatever it is. Write in. Tell us. And even if it's not a huge topic, what we do is we kind of save the smaller ones and we put it all together yes. sometimes yes. for like a sort of grab bag. Um, our query show and our first pages show also, you know, we could stand to to have some more submissions. Yep. Again, like, you know, if you want us to critique your first page or your query, send them to us, printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can head on over to Patreon and you can um, you can also DM us stuff. Like, that's yep. also a valid way yep. of getting in touch. Um, but that is, that's mostly it. All right. So... I don't want to spend too long on this. I don't think anyone else wants to spend too long on this, um, just because it did spark a very large conversation um, the other day, and it's going to continue sparking conversation. And there's not, we all, we've covered this topic before, but I think it is worth bringing up this latest installment of the news book conundrum. Um, and we are, of course, talking um, this week about Bob Woodward's new book. Um, He's got a book called Rage coming out on the 15th. Um, it is, I don't know, what is it? We know it, we already know. It's this big, giant, juicy tell-all about the Trump presidency built upon the fact that he had all this access. Um, it's similar to his last one. Was it called Fire and Fury, right? Um, like these, we know the deal with these books, right? Like they're loaded with, like, it's just palace intrigue is what is what I would call it. Like you have someone who's kind of embedded in an administration as a journalist and their job is basically just to like get all the juicy bits put them in a book and then it's lucrative to a publisher because at a moment like this everyone is very concerned and wanting to pay attention to this administration they're scared of so they want to hear all the bits of 
you know, Trump admitting to various things. All like you can see why a book like this might be considered lucrative. Um, and we've had the debate before about why books like that are reactive and harmful to the public good just because they essentially they monetize public fear, right? They rather than trying to produce something enduring, they are attempting to capitalize on people's worries, on people's like, you know, genuine fear of of this political moment. The doom scrolling habit. Right, exactly mm-hmm. exactly. It's like the it's the book version of the doom scroll, exactly. And that isn't necessarily good publishing and you know, it's not even designed to last very long, right? Didn't you just tell me that like oh. it's so it sold what Fire and Fury, which sold a bazillion copies when it published. Yeah, it, it published, I think, or when it was published, which was not that long ago. Yeah, not that it, long ago at all. Um it sold like one point seven million yeah. copies in its first week. Yep. Last month, I think, it sold thirteen copies. Yeah, like these things <laughs> come and go. They're not meant to be endure like these are not books that are designed to last. They're designed to capitalize on a moment and then disappear. And we right. have said in many episodes why we think that's weird publishing. Um, but this one has riled people up specifically because in one of the pre-release, you know, tidbits, right? Like there's like excerpts out there. There's, you know, we it's part of the strategic promotional campaign for the yeah. book where they start to kind of leak certain bits of it that should theoretically make you want to buy the rest of the it's book. The, it's the... Cable news yes. book version of like when a comedy yeah. movie has a trailer that gives away all the funniest jokes yes. before you actually go see the movie. And like, there were a couple bits that were released that really got people talking. One of them was an exchange in which Trump effectively admits to knowing how severe the pandemic is mm-hmm. or was going to be back in February and made the strategic choice to downplay it to the American public. Um, which I think we would all agree is, I mean, we're not going to talk politics very much, but that's obviously catastrophic. Real like, deadly. That's, that's, like, it's unspeakable. Like, you, there are, <laughs> it's tough to even capture what that is and what that means and, like, how we should respond to that politically. But the reason people are mad is precisely for that reason, which is, why are we hearing about this now? Right? Like, this is a book, like, it's September. This is an exchange that Bob Woodward had in February. It is very straightforwardly one that would influence, like, whether or not you think, like, there was a lot of debate over, like, well, nothing would have changed if we had known this earlier. Like, people don't react to information that well. You know, like, Fox would have said it was bull. Like, like all that stuff. And that's all probably true. But that doesn't change the fact that that is essential information that we had a right to know. Right, and a journalist and, had and that a journalist had it, and like they kept it. He didn't publish it. He didn't write a piece on it. He didn't give it to a different journalist. He didn't do any of the things he could have done. He sat on it and waited to use it during his promotional book cycle so he could sell copies. And that obviously has people pretty upset. And it had what I think is a really kind of a toxic response from certain. I don't know, I think notably well-paid, well-established journalists who have sort of looked at the backlash toward Woodward about this, saying, well, why didn't he come forward to say themselves, you know, they, you know, I saw like Olivia Newsy the other day had some like snarky tweet about how, well, I guess she won't be voting for Bob Woodward for president. And like her point is that Trump is the one who did the bad thing, not Woodward. But 
and that's true, but it's not complete, right? Like it, it basically says it's fine to put aside journalistic ethics in the name of taking care of your content. And right? publishing is complicit in that. And publishing is so complicit in that. And you can just see, like, we've talked for years now since the Trump administration you know, came to power about how publishing has looked at all of these, you know, all this fear, all this danger, and has said, how can we sell that to people? How can we sell that back to people? Rather than try to, you know, help people make sense of it, rather than try to, and I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but like, by and large, major presses have looked at this moment and said, okay, we got to monetize this. We have to sell this back to people in their moment of fear. And this is, I think, the final extension of it, which is basically rather than journalists giving you information when you need it in a way that could theoretically influence your life, the life of public opinion, the state of discourse in this country in a meaningful way, it's more, you know, the priority is instead keep it, package it, sell it for twenty nine ninety five on pub day. And when we put it like that, it sounds incredibly pernicious and absurd, and they would certainly not put it that way. They would have, you know, all sorts of, you know, thorny reasons why they can't do that. But that is what we're doing. And it's just, to me, I just find it to be, I guess, like, it's just worth pointing out that this sort of publishing, like, we talked, I remember the episode that we did right in November of 2016 when we were like, how is publishing going to respond? This is and how publishing responds. It's been four years. It's been first of all, it's been four years we've been doing this show. Oh man! Uh, but um, it's they've responded in what I think has been the worst way possible, and I'm interested, you know, to like tie this in a forward-moving way. I think there is going to be a real reckoning after this current election that we're about to have, um, because on the one hand. You have, you know, let's say Biden wins. He is someone who I think we would all, like most people, a lot of people like him overtly because he's a more quote unquote boring president, right? Like, <laughs> you know, a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say like, well, I just don't want to think about who the president is. You know, like I don't want to be aware of that. Like he's someone I don't have to think. Right. And it's like, I wonder what that dynamic is going to do to this sort of palette. Like, are there going to be juicy tell-alls about the Biden administration as it's happening? I actually don't think so. Because he's just not that sort of figure in the public imagination, you know? And, like, if Trump wins, are we going to see... I sort of have this sense that people may just become despondent, right? Like, I feel like first term, people are shocked. They are interested in hearing about these things. They're sort of... Like, if he wins, I... This is a long way of saying, like, I think this book's... This sort of book's bubble is about to burst. Mm. I think this mode of publishing may disappear or at least really slow down because, one, I think, you know, I was encouraged by how many people were pissed the other day at seeing these Woodward excerpts and being like, why the hell are we learning about this in a promotional cycle and not when it happened? And I think that sort of public opinion does matter. I think that people are going to fatigue on this sort of book. Um, and I guess, you know, we'll see what happens in a couple months. But, like, it's... I think that that's really optimistic. Yeah, no, I, like, I realize it is, but yeah, like, I don't know. I think like yeah. maybe I'm just like a huge no, no. news cycle pessimist, oh. but like I okay, so like I'm married yeah. to somebody yeah. who like every time yeah. something small happens, it's like it's like um yeah. when uh 
when like <laughs> John Oliver does the like we got him and yeah. like all the confetti comes down and it's like we didn't actually get right. him like right. that's like every day in my right. house right. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it it really is and so like I don't know because I think I think I I love the idea that publishing will burst this bubble itself and eventually you know like it only takes one or two times to put in, you know, a million dollars into a project, expecting it to sell a ton the first yep. month and then not at all, yep. and have that not meet expectations. Like, that is so much money to lose. And it's also <laughs> an incredibly, like, going off of how we know publishers think, which is based on precedent and based on a risk right. aversion. If that prospect becomes risky, they'll quit doing it. Right, Be especially because it's, you know, it's really big boom or bust, and what we've seen over time is we have seen publishers issue their mid-list, yes. which, which are steady earners, yes. for the idea of maybe I'll get an extra mill, because, again, you know, they're, they're looking for yeah. quarter over quarter growth, not necessarily, like, just, like, staying in business, um, and I don't know, like, I, there's, there's something... I don't know. There's something where I think if things go wrong come November or even after, like even if things go right, I think that we're going to feel the effects of this particular political moment in the way that people talk about things for a really long time. And I think it's going to be hard for publishing to let go of that. That's true. Given I think that's that true. publishing is convinced that it's fighting with the news and with social media and all of that rather than being its own discrete thing. Isn't that, that last, that last little phrase I think is really interesting that about publishing being convinced of what it is. Cause I go back and forth on two different views on that. And I one is publishing believes that it's helping <laughs> by publishing a book like Bob Woodward's book. Like it's saying, you know what, actually we think that this is an act of resistance. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that I think they're wrong about that. But the question is whether or not they genuinely believe that or whether it's sort of a cynical move to capitalize on things. And depending on the book, depending on what it is, both. it could be a little bit of both. But, like, to your point, this a reckoning needs to happen. Like, if public, like, we can't, if publishing is going to be. If, and I guess when I say publishing here, I do mean like large-scale commercial trade, like the big publishing. Obviously, as we're about to talk about, there's a lot of smaller places that are doing some really great things right now. Um, but large-scale commercial publishing needs a reckoning with how it relates to like news cycles and doom scrolling and trying to be a part of in a very, very accelerated discourse online. And without a correction... I you're I guess you've you've convinced me. Like I, I think my <laughs> optimism I, my optimism was sourced in public opinion swaying away from um, wanting this sort of thing, which I do think might happen. But I also think, based on other things truths we've sort of tried to tease out on this show, like publishing influences those decisions, right? Yeah. Like publishing tells people what they should want to read, and so if they continue to say, hey. This is the one. This is the book that's going to bring him down. This is the book that's going to give you the essential tidbit you need to know to be a good little resistor. Like, the people buy it. You know what I mean? Like, they have publishers do have that power as much as they wish to abdicate it. Like, it's and I, I mean, yeah. and maybe, maybe it'll change that these won't be 
the million dollar acquisitions. Yeah. Maybe they'll only be the hundred thousand dollar acquisitions. That would be a big change. It would. That would help. No, like honestly, like that would be, <laughs> that would be really nice. Like, and. I guess we'll see, but I just, this Woodward thing, and most demoralizing to me was the responses from certain very well-heeled journalists being like, well, of course Woodward did that. He should do that. That's how, that's totally normal and acceptable because it does speak to a certain amount of like, like right now the enduring trait in American journalism appears to be careerism and not like Well, the jobs are disappearing. Of course it is. Yeah, it is. It's just like, man, we are in a bad spot with regard to dispersal of information. And publishing is very much a part of that. And um, I guess we'll see. But yeah. it actually, this actually does tie a little bit, I think, into the other thing we want to talk about today. Um, and so... Which is that we turned <laughs> one this week. I would like to wish you and your half of the loon um, a happy first birthday. Um, Headwater Literary Management this week, maybe even I think it was so, yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Yeah, turned one year old. Um, and obviously for personal reasons, that's very exciting to us. We're happy to have done. You know what I mean? Like all this sort of stuff. That's not really what we want to talk about today, though. What I think we want to do today, Laura, and what I'm interested to hear you start with is, you have now been the co-founder and mm-hmm. head honcho at a boutique literary agency for a year now. Yep. It's Even though that been, year didn't quite look It's been <laughs> the a way we very, planned. very strange year for a number of reasons um, in the wider world and publishing all this stuff. And, like, my question to you is, now that you are, like, at the reins of something, mm-hmm. like, what do you feel, what are you learning or what are you seeing, how have you seen the industry differently? in the last year and how do you see more importantly like as you and I continue as other agencies continue as small presses continue like again like I really want to emphasize this conversation is not about you and I reflecting or navel gazing it's about like what are you seeing right now about the state of things from a perspective that you did not have a year ago yeah good really really good question um so I I think And I don't want to make it sound that, like, me working as an agent at somebody else's agency wasn't, like, a strategy-filled position. Yeah. Um, But there's something different when, like, every move you make is instead of just, like, making money for another company, but is really, like, building the reputation and and building the the ethics of it. And I think ethics is is a term that I keep returning to a lot and particularly this week given the the whole journalism thing that we just talked about um but it ends up i i think like the question is is when you own the business the question you and i have that we didn't have before because we didn't own it is like do we pick the easy bigger money way or do we pick kind of like an ethical or more like culturally long lasting way? Yeah. Um, and that yeah. that spreads from everything for like the types of authors we're trying to work with, yep. the types of editors we're trying to work with, yep. Um, yep. the the ways that we're advocating for our clients, yep. um, the way that we're engaging in teaching and you know working at conferences and other events like that and because because like 
one thing that's really interesting is like you and I chose to be boutique. Yeah. Like that and that itself is a very like that's not just a financial decision or like a workflow decision. Um what what a boutique agency is is it's like fewer clients, more hands-on. That's basically it, mm-hmm. right? Um and so it's it's like it's not just a workflow or financial decision. It's 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 an ethical decision. Yep. No, I mean I I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And it's just like, you know, we I feel when you start anything like this, and this is a question that a small press asks itself all mm-hmm. the time, like, you know, who are we and what are we trying to be? And the truth is that you and I here yep. in Minnesota are never going to be ICM. We're never going to be the big giant, um, you know, CAA. Like, that's just not who – that's just never going to be our identity. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, to a certain extent – that level of size and scale is just not available to us. But it's also, I not think, something we're interested not in. something we're super <laughs> interested in because, like, I, I think, like, over the course of this year, you and I have made a lot of decisions. And I know, having talked to a lot of people who run small presses, who work at small presses, various things, like, they have made a lot of decisions that, in response to a very strange year worldwide mm-hmm. and in the industry, like, have basically said, actually, we need to take a certain stand here that doesn't necessarily put our immediate financial interest at heart you know what I mean and like I can think of so many instances like like when I think about what I did this year Mm -hmm. for work the thing I think about most was helping authors figure out how to have a creative life during a frankly a completely tumultuous period you know I have authors on deadline Mm -hmm. who are you know, suddenly instead of writing their book all year, they're doing childcare. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I've moved every single like, one of my deadlines yeah. for my authors on contract. Yeah, sometimes no, I mean, more like, than once. That kind of stuff, or, or like, hey, you know, we're gonna pitch these presses instead of these other kind because you know they're gonna take better care of your work, and we just simply can't afford to have you published by someone who doesn't get it. You know, like I've sold a lot of political books this year, and are you know consideration has been how can we make this book something that speaks well to the longevity of your thinking and career as opposed to something that reaches for the first week sales by being kind of splashy and shallow and because at a time like this the you like, can't count on those first exactly sales. like we, we've changed and i just remember like i remember being at a small press um and being an editor doing a job honestly that i thought was this job you know, I was at the. I was working as an editor. I had the chance. You know, they told me when they brought me in. They were like, "Okay, you, know, you can build your list. You're going to acquire things. You can kind of set the tone. Like you're going to do all this stuff. You're going to have all this control over everything." <laughs> and so, and I kind of said, "Okay, okay, I can kind of, you know, make the creative choices I want to make. I can stake my claim in publishing. I can do all these different things." And the truth is that it just it didn't happen that way for a number of reasons. But one of them was just because strategically we got to a point where like yeah you could theoretically acquire a given piece of literary fiction that would need some work breaking out from an author you know like a book that does not have a very lucrative publishing case that nonetheless i think is really good versus but and it would always have to be paired with here's this piece of sensational 
nonfiction, you know, probably by someone very wealthy who's going to be willing to buy a bunch of copies that none of us like, but we do it because it keeps the lights on. And those sorts of considerations, that sort of boomer bust publishing, it takes a toll, you know, and like you and I, I feel like, and a lot of other small press, I think specifically of like, you know, Coffeehouse Press here in town, you know, has an incredible list and they basically have decided the same thing. It's like, we're not doing the bullshit, you know, (laughs) and like we've sort of decided it feels, or at least I like to think that we're only going to do the stuff that we genuinely care about. And we're only going to do the things we think, whether we're right or wrong about their value, right? Like you and I are not perfect it's, cultural yeah, taste, like, but yeah. like we, on some, we do believe in the things that we work on, you know. And like, it's we aren't thinking purely in terms of bottom line stuff. We're thinking about people. We're thinking about you know what we want to see published, all that kind of stuff. And that means that that means that we are going to have to scrap a little bit more on a profit level. You know what I mean? Like, it does mean that things are not going to be easy every single month. It means that you should sign up for our Patreon so that we can keep the lights on at our stupid literary agency. Um, like, all, all that kind of stuff. But you see what I'm saying? Like, And I bring, I want to circle all of this into this larger idea, especially as we see the big get bigger, right? Like, we've seen rumors that you know we're going to have more mergers amongst the big five, yeah. right? CBS, which yeah. is a news right. organization, is trying to sell Simon and Schuster. Right. So Simon and Schuster might become part of PR. Like there's just or HarperCollins, yeah, like or there's Percet or whatever. We'll see, but there's going to be more consolidation. And the reason, always unspoken, of course, is that they have to compete with the Colossus on the other side. They got to compete with Amazon, and doing that will also mean further incentive to focus on trying to like honestly the simplest way i can put it in the terms of this episode is that merger will mean more publishing like bob woodward you know what i mean like in its agents are talking about like how a merger like that is is bad because what it does is it means when when mergers happen there's consolidation and consolidation means consolidating um editorial positions so there's fewer editors it also means shuttering imprints yeah it means that there are fewer places to try to submit projects to, yep. but but also <laughs> I think like and that's just from like a how you do your job and opportunities yep. for authors, but but the 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 idea of those cable news style books, that's that's I think more important or like of a of a more concern to me as an agent then like how many places am I going to be able to sub this book to because like because like the the submitting the book and how many options you have there that is like that's a symptom that's not the actual problem like the actual problem so what is the actually there it is what's the actual problem let's talk about that because that's where I want to get yeah so the actual problem is the 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 idea is that the larger a company gets, the the more it's owned by a media conglomerate, the more they're having to compete and answer to their shareholders and and have growth month over month, quarter over quarter, Perpetual year over growth, year. Yes. Like what that growth means is that publishing is giving its way over to being um, an instrument 
like kind of singularly of profit yep. rather than culture. Yes. And yes, yes. I mean, I think we <laughs> it's probably fair to say that like four years ago we started this podcast with the with the idea of spending tons of time exploring that interplay between like publishing and literature. Yeah. Um and you know two business and the art. Yep. And they're two separate things, but the but the thing that's always like been so frustrating and exhilarating and exciting for everybody working in this industry is, or at least in the creative aspects of this industry, is that when it happens right, there is like this beautiful, harmonious interplay between the the like the capitalism of yep. this and the cultural impact of this yep. moment. Yep. And my concern as an agent is not, oh, no, I'll have to submit this project to, you know, 15 places instead of 20. My concern is what if these editors aren't allowed to care about a project that can have long lasting cultural impact? If you talk to and this is an anecdotal claim, but if you I know talking to agents at various places, you know, when we talk about what editors are telling us what like reason or in terms of like reasons for rejection i think that you will find a lot of agents nodding their heads along with what you're saying right now <laughs> like a lot of people are getting rejections that i think at first sound fairly incoherent you know they seem like well that has nothing to do with the, how good the book I is i love everything like, about it yeah. but i can't <laughs> take it <laughs> i'm going everyone like every every agent who listens to this is I know has a story like that probably from the last book they subbed like everyone gets that response all the time and it's it just means I I do think there's like a wedge being driven right now between culture and profit motive right and like for me I look at I look at Amazon I look at where publishing is at right now I look at the pandemic of indie bookstores closing all this kind of stuff and I'm like if we're trying to win quote unquote win as in stay sustainable in light of a giant colossus trying to crush us no not stay sustainable it's yeah. make profit <laughs> that's, that's actually yes so yes true um, if we're trying to continue to grow we're going to lose you cannot this is my thing you cannot win this fight on Amazon's terms you cannot be a like this industry will not survive if it is if its goal is to somehow outcompete Amazon on a scale and profit. Our it, cash flow doesn't come from the sale of it toasters. It won't work. It won't work. It will not work. And it's to me what that means is the way forward, the way for publishing, you know, <laughs> and you know how you know, if for books to be essential, that classic phrase that, mm. that we love so much. Um, publishing has to define itself as something other than what it currently defines itself as it has to get back to being a cultural product first you know and i think that's why when i look at places you know some of the smaller indie presses right now that are honestly doing really good work like i look at someone you know melville house counterpoint coffee house gray wolf like these places tin house you know these places you know a lot of the lefty presses haymarket verso you know like these places i really like those are very good presses to me. They're very good, um, and they're they're good because they're trying to stick to something that they believe is more. Their mission is about more than just producing the product. 
And I really think that we have to get there as an industry. And I know, like, you and I, as we get started, and we are only getting started, we're very primordial. Like, I just pictured us as, like, little ooze. We are. We like, are. Like, little ooze, um, like, yeah. amphibians. You're a little Cambrian, like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to This is breaking my, down. Our, uh, our knowledge of, like, paleontology yes. is very low. Um, and <laughs> But, <laughs> like, my point is, like, the goal, our goal, I think, is even in the near term where it's, like, very difficult to not reach for fast, easy, you know, whatever, to try to stick to what we like and care about as a means of kind of forging a real place Like, I think we have to do it, and I think everyone has to do that. Like, I really, really believe that the way publishing can win the fight for its own future is by thinking, like, the way we kind of phrased it before the episode was, they got to think smaller. Yeah. Smaller in terms of not ambition or, like, goal, but in terms of, like, scale and what it's trying to do, right? Like, how about you go book by book, you try to publish things that you actually feel matter, and if you're doing that, if you're producing essential work, there, Amazon can't stop that. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way to run that down. Like, you have to... And it keeps going, and it grows. And that involves some scrapping. Like, you know, I mean, suddenly we're talking about, um, you know, like, the question everyone is probably asking is, like, well, how do you keep the lights on if you do that? Like, especially if you're a small press, like, you have to... You do have to make money, and the answer of course is, of course, but there are... Like, I think of how small presses do it, right? Like, arts grants and, you know, things... There are ways... I guess what we're kind of skirting around right now is that we just need that sort of reimagining of what publisher publishing's role is. Like, you know, you and I talk all the time about art versus business, mm-hmm. right? And we need we need a swing toward art if it's if publishing is going to be the thing that it really actually needs to be in order to endure and survive because like this prevailing sentiment I have all the time and I see, you know, I talk with others and they say it too, is like, it's just like not like publishing really wants to be this like profit driven like business and it's really bad at it. It's so bad. You know what I mean? Like we're not, publishing is not an industry with a ton of innovation. It's not good at like being cutting edge. All the things that you would associate with like even your least favorite giant like tech startup like at least those places are like trying like they're better at making money (laughs) like and i just it's just bad there's so much bad business there's so much bad innovation in publishing so many dumb decisions and it's like okay then let's be something else like we're not going to be the tech startup like we're not going to be publishing is never going to be silicon valley you know we need to instead be just a cultural institution that preserves voices and people and writing in this country that really matter. And that's how, that's how we're going to survive because bringing this back around specifically to like yours and my decision to, to be boutique and to kind of engage in this thinking smaller so that you can think bigger and long lasting. Um, I think it's also, worth considering so we've we've spent you know past you know 20 minutes or whatever talking about publishing a product but we also have to consider the real like drain on on our creators that that does and like there's something 
about working with and writing for a, a smaller press where they like like I feel good like I feel like as a as an as an agent I'm taking care of my creators so yep. that in this crazy time yep. they are being able to create and not feeling super burnt out and you know that that we're not going to exhaust them and and lose them as a resource like I think it's I think it's one yep. of the things that doesn't really hit in this conversation very often when we're talking about super fast, super like trendy publishing and, and, you know, that sort of like candy, that, that like candy publishing is that that burns people out. Yeah, it does. Like that, that is not sustainable for an individual creator. And the, and the problem when you are engaging in a style of art, art may be a strong word, but like when you're engaging in a style of like, creative product that will eventually burn somebody out what you're doing is you're missing out on all of that name recognition and that loyalty and so then what you're doing is you're alienating your readers and it just kind of like you can see why the system like focusing primarily just on the profit engenders distrust or disloyalty in readers who might instead of reading this you know well thought out well researched book might instead just read a wikipedia article and go along with their day yeah you know i had i'm doing this thing right now like just on a personal i have an incredibly exciting fall coming up of pitching like i love the stuff that i'm coming out with this year and it's one of the books i have um, I mean, I'm not going to get into specifics on it, but it feels – it's a book I care about. It's an author I really respect and like, obviously, or I wouldn't have signed them. Um, but it's a book that, separate from a lot of what I do, really felt like it had that like contemporary hook. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's one that could really be the sort of, quote-unquote, like – I don't know, current, it's a little bit more current eventy, even though I think it makes a more enduring, you know, argument that I really care about. And I remember, like, you know, I was recently talking to the author about it, and we were sort of taught, we were basically saying, like, look, we've got a window here. We should push. We should go fast. We should get this out there because, you know, there's an opportunity here. And all of that is true, but we sort of ended up at the point where, like, doing that is going to burn us out. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is an author who, like anyone else, makes trying to make a living as a writer right now. You know, has like two other jobs, has a bunch of other projects going on. Is totally like they're already overburdened before they decided to put together a book proposal. You know what I mean? And like we just sort of said, okay, you know what? This will get done when it gets done. We're not going to try to burn ourselves out trying to get this out right this second. Like it's going to matter how it matters, and. That was an individual. The talent comes first. The art comes the second. The art comes like it's just the, we have the to. comes third. We have to take care of people like that. And like, I I think about so many of my books with publishers right now that have political hooks and like remembering, you know, having conversations about well, should we crash this before November? Should we get this out? Like, and in each case, actually, and I'm really proud of this, was that we decided on all of these that. The answer was no, is that we want the book to be read 
two years from now. We want mm-hmm. this book to be read beyond just this season. We're going to and we're going to publish it and write it and edit it accordingly. Try to make this not just a quote unquote election book that ties into people's political conscience in the moment, but trying to go a little bit deeper, go a little bit more like basically trying to push back against that urgency that is so frequently tied to okay, how can we capitalize on people's attention? And I don't know, that's going to probably mean we make a little bit less money, you know, but like what are you going to do? Like But it means that the talent is going to be It able means to make that we're building more a more sustainable time. like industry and yeah. list and like I don't know. It's we'll see. Yeah. But. Yeah. So, we've got a <laughs> We've got a Taloon It May Concern. Yes, and Eric, we do. would you like to read it to I would love to, to read me? it to you. I would. Okay. Dear Laura and Eric, the recent cover reveal of an upcoming book prompted a Twitter discussion of its apparent representation and sensitivity issues. Some suggested the author ought not to have written it at all. The author soon agreed and, per a Twitter statement, is canceling publication. From a business perspective, what are the possible outcomes for this? If an author tells their agent, editor, and or publisher that they want to pull their upcoming book, who can say no, who can say yes, and what might happen either way? Are we talking advance repayments, lawsuits, you'll never work in this town again, tarring and feathering, all of the above? Signed, Morbidly Curious in Michigan. This is... Juicy question. A really, really good question. (laughs) So, Laura, author comes to you after a public reckoning and says, I don't want to publish my book anymore. Yep. Go. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So the the thing here is it how how a person and a project like this is treated in a certain moment is very dependent on a lot of factors, but I kind of just want to like yeah. buzz through a few of the yeah, options. Please. Okay. Um so I guess the chillest option for everybody would be to say, okay, um, it, as the publisher, say, okay, we understand where you're coming from. You're under contract with us. Write a different book and we'll publish that one. So that way the author still is under contract. Nobody has to worry about repaying money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would say that this kind of option, it's really, really hard to tell how often this happens until several years later until you know somebody announces a separate book with the same publisher that was the first one okay yeah Yeah. um i would say probably in this current moment particularly rated like like related to representation issues probably the most common thing that happens is when the author or the publisher decide to pull the book and like quite honestly this comes out of like a mutual conversation because You know, like the publisher doesn't want to sink money into a project that is going to get, you know, in a ton of trouble or they might do that. They might do that math. But if the author wants to pull it, it's going to be really hard to market a project. Right. So oftentimes they just say, "Okay, sure. What happens here, though, (laughs) is um, something behind the scenes that I feel like is really worth talking about, Mm -hmm. which is that. most commonly, the publisher will require any advance to be paid back. Yep. And if this is pre-publication, like, the whole advance won't have been paid. So, like, usually the author will have received probably somewhere between one quarter to one half of the total yes. monies 
of the advance. Yep. Um, they usually receive, you know, a chunk upon signing, yeah. a chunk upon manuscript acceptance, a chunk, up, a chunk yeah. upon publication. There might even be, um, particularly because of like cash flow stuff right now, um, there is a tendency to have like a chunk, you know, yeah. six months or a year after publication. Um, and so the expectation is to pay that back. Um, it's not necessarily a question of like, you have to pay us back immediately, but there usually is some sort of agreement that if this, this author were to publish a book somewhere else, um, that advance needs to go to repay this other publisher yeah. first yep. before they can keep any of the yeah. money. Um, and so it ends up being sort of like a chain, <laughs> a chain. Um, but something really interesting happens, which is that the agent is not required to pay their money back. So the author is on the hook for that total advance, mm -hmm. but they're, but the agent doesn't have to give back their chunk. Well, it gets into that dynamic of like, this is why even when it feels theoretical at the time, when we say you are paying your agent to, do a job. to do a job, this is what we mean. Like, it's more than just, like, taking, like, at the time, what it is, it's taking a cut of money you're getting. Sure. But what that means is, like, they don't, get, like, they did their job. You know what I mean? Like, the cut doesn't go, like, you paid for that. You know, you paid for them to negotiate and pitch and do all that stuff. Right. And so, like, you are probably out 15%. You know, like, it's, I don't know. Yeah. And so I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, like, from an agent's perspective, what are the ethics of canceling a book, right? Yeah. Like, what what is the ethical way forward here as an agent? And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, as, as somebody who's like, okay, like, value, like, value work done, mm -hmm. right? It's, yeah, you deserve to be paid. But I think there is perhaps a... best practices yes. in the way forward, yes. which I believe like best practices would be like, keep the money agent, but like work with the author and invest in them more yeah. so that you can like stick with them. Because the yeah. thing is, is like, if, if we're going forward with the example of a problematic project, right? There's a lot of reasons books get canceled, but you know, this is, this is the one that's on everybody's minds right now. Like, an agent is in a lot of ways very responsible for that book being acquired because Absolutely. they did their job. Absolutely. Right? Like, and the agent they are, didn't notice. They definitely have a part in this. They yeah. have a part in this. And so I think that the, the, like, ethical and kind way forward is to continue working with that person and help them recover, help them get that other deal that will pay back the money that they need to pay, um, and give them other opportunities. You know, there there's an event. Um, one of the last times that a project was pulled, the agent and the author parted ways. And I don't know particularly what happened there. It could have been, like, who knows? But the point is, is, like, looking at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that in, in the... In the behind-the-scenes work here with the with the repayment and the new project and the canceling of the thing, like, 
I, I think that it's it's the responsibility of the publisher, it is the responsibility of the agent, as well as the responsibility of the writer. And maybe there are some instances where the publisher chooses to cancel the book, and oftentimes when they do that, they say, um, they say, you know, you don't have to pay us back so far, we're just canceling it moving forward. Yeah. Um, and in that case, you know, like, I feel like that is at least kind of on the back end taking responsibility yeah. there. That's the thing. It's like, I also, one other thing that happens in situations like this, is like, I guess this is an instance where, like, the author says, I don't want to publish this, but the publisher still wants to. Like, everyone had a hand in this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if there's a book that the author has decided, based on feedback, is harmful in some way, has been you know, doesn't really handle issues of representation or whatever it is very well, like, that responsibility is is not just theirs. You know what I mean? And this is something we see all the time where it's like, anytime something bad happens, you know, anytime we get a book, as soon as something goes wrong, the only person we ever talk about or think about is the author. Yep. As opposed to their agent, too, as opposed to the uh, publisher who decided it was, you know, like, the editor, like... There's lots of other parties here. And so, like, the ethical thing for me is to try to spread. Like, obviously, if there's a sharp disagreement, like, publisher says, no, we still think this is good and we want to do it. Or author says, I don't want to. Like, that's one thing. But, like, everyone has a part in this. And everyone, on some level, ethically, even if not, like, contractually or whatever, like, should take responsibility for that yeah. you know and, and they should is... spread that around because that's the way to best help the most yeah precarious in the discourse party. Yeah. and also behind the scenes and it is like it is worth mentioning that publishing contracts whether it's with your agent or with um your publisher will have kind of an outline of responsibilities and what happens when things go wrong but there are like a lot of humane ways to go about things and to problem solve that kind of don't necessarily involve like legal mediation and lawsuits like there's a lot of steps that happen before you get there yeah um and so it's kind of the same thing as like when you put your the authors that i work with are always like terrified that you know they they put their due dates for their turnaround times of their manuscripts into the contract they're like well i I'm not. I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna miss the deadline. And what yep. what's gonna happen? It's like, yep. well, we just tell them that we, we can't. It and we'll, yeah. it's fine because like we're people working yes. on something. Yes. And I think, um, like the mechanics of a particular, like pulling a particular book is going to vary. But I think what <laughs> at least I wanted to get out of this mm-hmm. particular conversation is that um, there's a lot of flexibility particularly if you're working with people who will take responsibility with you and you should be working with those types of people absolutely yeah all right all right wonderful well thank you so much for joining us on this um on september 11th september 11th (laughs) this 136th episode of print run our four-year kind of podcast one year headwater um yeah we're one week out for my birthday there's lots of things so um thank you for joining us remember to email us your queries your first pages your suggestions for flex episodes or any other questions you might have printrunpodcast at gmail.com we will see you for a regular episode not next week because I'm out of town but the week after yes 
Bye. Bye.